from GreenBiz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz headquarters at 350 Frank Ogawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, a new wave of ocean cleanup technologies, Hawaii's bumpy road to 100% renewable energy, the man who created the lithium-ion battery, and taking on plastic waste in Boise, Idaho? It's not small potatoes this week on 350. It's April 27th, 2018. Welcome to Green Biz 350. Joining me as always across the United States of America is Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Hello, Joel. How are you? I'm uh, I'm doing well. It's been a busy week. Sleep it's deprived. Be, yeah, I'm my a poor bit, uh, sleep deprived boss. I'm <laughs> uh, down a court more. Let's just say, but you know that's that's kind of how I roll anyway. But yeah, it's a busy week, and um, as you know, I'm getting ready to to leave town for on a real live. What do you call it? Um, oh, vacation. <gasps> vacation. Yeah. My goodness, where are you yeah. going? Well, uh, the heart of it is uh, about twelve days in Morocco, with Ooh. a little, little, a couple of European cities bookending that as a uh, come and go from the United States. So, uh, yeah, uh, it's been on the list, and um, finally getting to do that. So, uh, checking out for a couple of weeks, which is not something I do a lot of. I usually combine some business and travel things during some business trips, particularly overseas into vacations. This one's pretty much pure vacay. Well, resist the urge, although I know you won't because I don't either, but uh, don't resist the urge to to be on email too much. Um, but you were in Arizona this week, so tell me what you were doing there. I was down in Phoenix, uh, Tempe actually, uh, to keynote the Earth Day event for SRP, uh, Salt River Project. They're uh, one of the large utilities in uh, Arizona. And um, it's just a, it's just interesting to um, to you know, check in with a utility, a energy and water utility in this case, to uh, see how they're doing. So how are they doing? Well, they're in an interesting place. First of all, they're going through a change of management. They have a new CEO, uh, Mike Hummel, uh, who's elevated from within the company, and he was there. I had a good chance to have a conversation with him, and uh, he followed my speech with his own remarks. Um, and this is just, it's just an old line utility that's got a lot of coal and nuclear and natural gas and, and some renewables that's just really beginning to ramp up. And um, it's going to be uh, interesting to watch this uh, utility transform as uh, electric vehicles ramp up uh, in Arizona as they are elsewhere, as renewables become a bigger part of the mix, uh, as some of their uh, big customers like Intel uh, which have water issues, um, just require a lot of water. Uh, the whole area, it's a desert, has water issues. And, uh, and, and how the water and power pieces fit together. As we all know, there's this energy-water nexus where it takes energy to move and treat water, and it takes water to make energy. And so um, how does that happen in, in the desert during a climate change? And where do renewables and, and everything around that fit in? And we haven't even talked about blockchain and all that. 
Um, but they have a new set of commitments, and, and a little bit later, I'll play an interview I did while I was there with their chief sustainability officer, Kelly Barr. And that was pretty interesting interview. I just listened to it uh, prepping for the program, and um, you know, I thought it was interesting that she has a 17-year plan, <laughs> um, scarily long, but also scarily short, in her opinion. Yeah, 2035. They just put out a plan that's got. Uh, like most plans, a bunch of pillars and uh, lots of ambition. And I think it's, you know, it's all good stuff. So, uh, you know, they're just setting down this path now. And again, the, 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 new, the new CEO, I think, is going to be influential in, in making sure that stuff stays at the top of the agenda. So interesting time for Salt River Project, SRP, as they're called. And um, I didn't know much about them. And it was a real treat to go down there and, and really uh, get to meet with a number of the, of the staff and and, and then speak to, I don't know, about 400 people uh, at their Earth Day event, which was standing room only, the, big, uh, the biggest one they'd had. And I'm not sure it's because of me or because they just have uh, just growing interest. And I think it's the latter among the employee base. So um, SRP, a little bit more on that in a few minutes. Well, let's start this week with a topic that I know that Heather, you are is near and dear for you. If so many topics that probably fit in that category, but <laughs> in a word, blockchain. We had this piece uh, by um, Russ Stoddard, who's the founder of uh, Oliver Russell, talking about how the blockchain could transform sustainability reporting, as it seems to be about to do in so many other aspects of sustainability. Yeah, and what I appreciated about this piece was it sort of stepped back and looked at um, what could be. It, it wasn't writing about any particular startup, um, although there are plenty. But it's a new twist on the um, idea that we need better automation of information, right, across, across supply chains. So we need to be able to collect more information from very disparate places out far, far, hinter, in the far hinterlands, right, in China and, and in different places on farms and in factories, and how do you do this? Well, you do this by making it very easy or easier for those locations to, quote, report, end quote. So, you know, not necessarily, they wouldn't necessarily be reporting, but they would be reporting, um, like data would be flowing from, from those locations into, uh, in, in theory, a corporation's mix when, when it comes to, to uh, the data that they're reporting on environmental Metrics like uh, I don't know water consumption and and um, air quality and and, and discharge you know s discharges of water and so forth uh, across an organization, and so the idea in, in this essay um, by Russ Stoddard is that um, you know maybe you could use this to pull that information uh, and it would do two things one it would create a lot more a lot more specific information, and it would also take uh, the, the, the message and the disclosure out of the hands of, um, of just a few people within a corporation. So uh, it's a trust issue and it's a transparency issue in, in many ways. Yeah, and the blockchain technology allows you to uh, timestamp individual pieces of data. That's one of the challenges if you're collecting dozens or even hundreds of pieces of data from hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of suppliers which is where most companies' impacts lie in their supply chain. You know, how do you check not just the veracity of it, but also the timeliness of it? And blockchain is going to enable us to do that better. And you can't lie. If you try to change something, it's going to be immediately transparent to everyone. Um, so if you made a mistake, 
you know, no, you know, you, you want to correct it, but um, you can't just alter the information without alerting the others within the supply chain. So let's move over to another story on Hawaii, which is, of course, the venue for our appropriately named Verge Hawaii conference coming up in June. Uh, senior writer Katie Fernbacher wrote a piece about um, why Hawaii should speed up its transition to clean energy and how if it brought it uh, more solar and wind to the grid more quickly, it could bring in, she says, billions of dollars of investment and create thousands of extra jobs, uh, according to a new report by Rhodium Group and Smart Growth America and, uh, and our friends at Elemental Accelerator. Uh, it's interesting, you know, just uh, this is one of those things that once the ball gets rolling, the ball in this case being the uh, Hawaii as the first state to commit to 100% renewable energy, that all of a sudden, in, in some ways, uh, there's a case to be made, at least, that uh, doing it faster is actually easier. Right. And, you know, so they have a lot of um, really good re economic reasons for saying that. And I, I, that's, well, uh, that's well documented in this particular research. Um, it shows that the job creation aspects, like, what is it, 2.9 billion dollars could come into the state if if they do this more quickly because the you know there's there's people watching right new business businesses want to um to be investing in locations where they are getting clean energy sources so in theory uh hawaii would make hawaii more attractive they also you know talk a little bit about what still is in the way of doing this and so in particular, one thing that we should be watching is the incentives. Um, there was a, a new uh, law signed into a place by Governor Inige, uh, basically saying that, that utilities would not be uh, penalized for adding. So like they wouldn't be looking at necessarily the rate um, structure and it, they'd be able to look at the rate structure in a different way. Um, and so a big change happening in how utilities are incented to uh, deliver services to their customers and, and why it's not just more power and, and cheaper power, but there's a lot more metrics that they're going to use to, uh, to make, you know, to incent the utilities to, to make this transition happen more quickly. Great. Well, let's move over to another story that I think was really interesting uh, about the work that Dow Chemical Company is doing in Boise, Idaho, of all places, to divert plastic waste uh, from municipal landfills uh, to f and getting it over to factories that are going to reuse it as fuel or repurpose it into new products. So there's a couple different things going on here, both the fuel side and the new material side. We should uh, make sure to separate those. Uh, but the story, basic story is that Dow's packaging and special plastics unit is providing uh, Boise with several hundred thousand uh, big, bright, hefty bags, which of course Dow makes, uh, to use uh, to stash juice pouches, candy wrappers, dinner, plasticware, uh, and other disposable items, particularly plastic items that are not easily recyclable. And it's it's going to help them figure out how to deal with plastic waste that it can no longer ship to China. China doesn't accept it anymore. And so, um, uh, as I said, they're, they're doing a couple different things with it. Uh, one is burning it, which is uh, controversial, to say the least. You know, converting plastic into fuel, uh, it certainly beats putting it in a landfill where it's just going to stay and going back to the oil from which it came. Um, actually, the, the fuel that they're, being, that they're creating in Boise can be as a drop-in fuel that can be used to replace conventional diesel. That's, you know, it's, it's 
Open question whether turning waste into fuel is truly a circular model because you're not exactly keeping the molecules in play. You're just giving them one more use cycle, in this case, as energy. Um, but this is uh, all part of the learning curve for uh, the, the, the circular economy is how do you uh, – what does it take? What does it mean to be circular? What are the various trade-offs for different types of disposition of what, what had been waste into uh, raw materials, fuel, or whatever? So uh, this is an interesting experiment that's going on there, and uh, we definitely want to keep our eye, eye on that. Yeah, and they, they've definitely they're going to be awarding uh, some more grants, right? So they they've so, so far supported Boise and Omaha, Nebraska, and uh, will be also supporting Cobb County, Georgia, which has received another grant um, alongside Boise, and uh, they're they're going to award some some more um, over the next uh, twelve months. So keep your eyes open, and, and if you're a municipality out there who's got an innovative program, potentially you could be uh, picked to work with Dow. So that's uh, just a, one of those experimental, um, you know, somewhat controversial, yes, because of the the, the incineration angle, but. You know, I guess all experimentation at this point is better than none. The problem of ocean-based plastics, you know, those massive gyres of debris choking off parts of the Pacific Ocean, has been gaining new attention lately. In fact, recently, GreenBiz Strategic Programs Director Shauna Rappaport attended the unveiling of the Ocean Cleanup Project in Alameda, California, not too far from the GreenBiz office. The project is a nonprofit organization developing advanced technologies to rid the world's oceans of plastic, and their goal is to clean up half the Great Pacific garbage patch in the next five years. Jana spoke with Dutch inventor Boyan Slot, who founded the Ocean Cleanup Project at the age of 18, about five years ago. Here's their conversation. So, Boyan, we are here at the Ocean Cleanup uh, Assembly Yard in Alameda, California. We've just done a bit of a tour of your site. Talk a little bit about just helping our listeners understand what is the Ocean Cleanup Project? Yeah, so at the Ocean Cleanup, we develop advanced technologies to rid the oceans of plastic, and we'll actually be starting with the, the infamous Great Pacific Garbage Patch, uh, of which the cleanup we want to start this summer. So um, the idea is that we use these very long floating barriers that, uh, that float around and uh, kind of act like a massive Pac-Man. So instead of going after the plastic with boats and nets, we actually have the plastic come to us uh, using these natural ocean currents in our advantage. So these systems act like giant, giant funnels to concentrate the plastic before we then take it out and ship it to land for recycling. Um, so after years of um, doing the reconnaissance of the patch and uh, developing the technology using scale model tests and prototypes, we're now actually come to the point that we're actually building the first uh, real cleanup system right here in Alameda, uh, which will be towing out uh, to the Pacific Ocean uh, in a few months from now and then hopefully having the first plastic back on land before the end of the year. And as you shared in some of your remarks with our group, uh, you can't solve a problem unless you really understand it. Talk a little bit about the scale and scope of, of the ocean plastics problem and specifically the Pacific Gyre. Yeah. Um, so actually, a few weeks ago, we, we published our, our findings from this reconnaissance effort where we crossed this patch with 30 boats and an airplane at the same time to really um, map it in, in, in great depth. And... Um, 
what we found was that the that the patch is about twice the size of uh, of Texas, uh, four times California. Uh, it contains 1.8 trillion pieces of plastic, uh, jointly weighing around 80,000 metric tons. And um, actually, the amount of plastic at the surface of this patch is 180 times higher than the naturally occurring seafood. So you can imagine if you're I know a turtle or an albatross there feeding. The chances are 180 times higher that you'll uh, consume plastic than uh, than normal uh, seafood. Um, and um, actually, what we also see is an exponential increase of plastic in this patch, uh, which also means that it's um, yeah, on one hand it's getting worse, but it also means that the, the patch is really persistent. So um, yeah, unless we clean it up, the patch will stay there for a very very long time. And we've been talking a lot at GreenBiz and with our work with Verge around the emerging circular economy. What Talk a little bit about what you're going to do with all of this plastic once you've reclaimed it from, from the oceans. What are your visions around that? Yeah, so we want to take it to land, uh, process it. Uh, so we have a, uh, we've developed uh, techniques on how we can uh, recycle this material into to high quality products. And uh, with that, we actually want to start a business with that and, um, and through that fund the operational costs of the cleanup. Um, so the plastic itself isn't really worth anything. Um, if anything, it, it may even uh, cost money to, to get rid of it. Um, so uh, where we think the value is being added is by, um, uh, by the, the, the story and the brand that's attached to the material. It's, you just use the analogy of uh, the difference between uh, a piece of the, the Berlin Wall and uh, a normal pebble, like one is worth nothing, and the other one is worth quite a lot. So uh, you can imagine that uh, you know the next pair of sunglasses that you buy, or uh, you know the the dashboard of your car, or uh, even like a, a piece of furniture, that in the future can be made out of plastic from the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, which would then in turn would help fund the uh, the cleanup. Well, and on that note, how are you thinking, if at all yet, about how you might uh, partner strategically with big companies who are making some of those products and how, how at this point in this stage of your develop, research and development, how might some of those companies think about partnering or supporting your efforts? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's two ways in which companies uh, can get involved. Uh, one is that um, you know, right now um, we uh, obviously we're focusing on launching the first system, but eventually we need to scale up in the coming years to 60 of these cleanup systems. Uh, and you can imagine these systems are around a kilometer in size. That's plenty of space for logos. Uh, the world is watching, so you can imagine that this can be one big advertising uh, billboard. And for five million dollars, approximately, or five, actually five million in euros. Uh, you can have your, your own system floating out there and all your customers and employees can see uh, and follow the clean, the, you know, your cleanup system and uh, seeing how much plastic you collect. And uh, that's how we want to kind of get those systems out there, cover the initial cost. Um, and already we, um, yeah, I think there's several tens of companies that have shown interest in, in doing that and we're currently engaged in conversations with them. Um, but there's still uh, still opportunities there, so that's that's one obvious one. And then on the other hand, um, we indeed look to partner with companies to um, you know to see whether we can uh, implement ocean plastic into their products. Um, and um, uh, yeah, uh, indeed, also there in, in conversations right now. But that will really sort of start to kick off uh, next year. 
And my final question is more on a personal note, your personal vision and mission. I, I think you mentioned that your your goal, once fully deployed and successful, is to be able to shrink. Is it 5, 5% every year of the Pacific Garbage Patch? Talk, just yeah. help us understand what, what radical success looks like. Yeah, so if, if we were to deploy 60 cleanup systems, we should be able to clean up half this great Pacific Garbage Patch every five years. And the end goal is to get to a 90% reduction by 2040. Um, and um, yeah, we, can, we, we think we can uh, achieve that. Thank you so much for your vision, your leadership, your, your inspiration. It's been so fun being out here. We're literally hunkered down in a shipping container right now, blocking ourselves from the wind, looking at the San Francisco Bay and, and these, um, these pipes and all of the gear. Well, we're, we're really excited to, to track your success and to understand how we can support it. So thanks again. All right. Thank you. As I said earlier in the show this week, I was in Phoenix, Arizona, Tempe, actually, at uh, SRP, a large uh, electric and water utility in Arizona, and gave a keynote speech for their Earth Day event. And I had an opportunity to, to step aside with Kelly Barr, the Chief Sustainability Officer at SRP. Kelly, uh, first of all, congratulations on a great Earth Day event. Thank you, and thank you for doing such a nice job. You uh, really opened a lot of eyes here at SRP, and I think it was a terrific opportunity for people to think about sustainability a little bit differently. Thank you. One of the ways that uh, SRP is thinking differently about sustainability is through a new uh, 2035 vision. Uh, tell me, talk a little about what that is, but also why a 17-year horizon? That's a long time for a company. Yeah, it, uh, when I talked about it today, it's a long time, but it's also, in a way, terrifyingly short, right? So uh, we sat down uh, about a year or two ago and began to look at how we might uh, develop a bundle, if you will, of sustainability goals for the company. As you mentioned earlier, we are a water and power public power utility. Uh, we've been around for more than 100 years. Uh, and we really wanted to think about uh, how we could look forward and get ready for the future. And so we uh, developed, uh, we talked with our customers and our stakeholders and identified five areas that were important to them and obviously important to us. And the first one was carbon emissions reduction. Uh, the second one is water resiliency. The third one is grid modernization. The fourth one is supply chain and waste minimization. And the last one is employee and community engagement. And so the idea is that every employee at the Salt River Project can align to at least one of those goals, one of those areas, and say, hey, I can help SRP be successful in uh, meeting that goal. So a lot of these things sound like costs, optimization, minimization, reductions, things like that. Is there a business opportunity in all of this for SRP? Absolutely. You know, uh, the grid modernization pillar, for example, is all about getting prepared, right? Getting prepared for EVs, getting uh, prepared for rooftop solar and other um, new technologies that we know our customers will bring to us and want to uh, uh, sync with the grid, and we're going to have to get ready for that. So um, the water resiliency is something that's kind of table stakes for, for SRP as a water and power utility. We need to be very concerned about how we're managing that really precious resource for uh, our Arizona customers. What, what drove the need for this? Was it internal or was it your customers? Uh, it was a little both. Um, uh, what we did do, though, as we started the process of pulling them together is interview customers and other stakeholders and try to determine you know, what was most important to them and what they were trying to, uh, to um, 
to succeed at. And so we visited with 18 different stakeholders, including some of our largest customers, and asked, you know, what could we do that would ha- that would help you be successful? And we kept hearing, clearly, uh, carbon reduction is important to folks, m- additional renewables, um, driving down our carbon intensity. But they were also very interested in water management and grid modernization. Um, supply chain and, and waste minis- minimization is, just seems to be um, kind of a given. People really want to see that. And so we're driving towards a 50% reduction by 2035. Were there any surprises, things you didn't expect to hear? Well, I did uh, think, and I shared it today when we were talking, and that is in visiting one of, with one of our largest customers, uh, I spent a lot of time talking about all the great things we were doing around sustainability. And essentially, he said he stopped me and he said, you know what, Kelly, if, if you didn't tell me about it, it didn't happen. If I didn't hear it, it didn't happen. And um, that really resonated because I think a lot of utilities um, are somewhat um, reluctant to share with their customers and the communities they serve all of the good work they do. And as a public power utility, we're particularly modest. Um, And so that has really resonated. And we're spending a lot of time in trying to put together communication packages so we can explain to our customers what it is we're doing and, and how we intend to get there. I'm not sure it's clear to most people why you wouldn't want to talk about the good things that you're doing. Why is that? You know, I, I, a part of it, I think, is just our culture. And, uh, we're, you know, we do a lot of really, really terrific things. And either um, the communicators in the company aren't aware that we're doing them or we just um, we don't we just do good work and, and then move on to the next good, good piece of work. And we don't really focus so much on telling people about it. And a lot of the stuff is just good business, and people expect you're doing it anyway. So in two years, it'll be Earth Day 2020. What will be an indicator that uh, in 2020 that, that SRP is on the right path on its 2035 journey? Well, uh, we have just completed the development of action plans, which will begin the implementation process for each one of our goals. There, as I mentioned, there are five pillars, but there are 33 separate goals, with each with individual metrics. So it is quite a package of sustainability initiatives. Um, and we will have, be making marked progress on each one of those goals. And um, in some cases, I think we will be well ahead of, uh, of, our, of our expected target, and that will make me happy. Uh, the great the great news about this particular framework is we allowed ourselves the ability, the freedom to come back and adjust it over time. So if we outperform for some reason, we can come back and, and make those goals tighter over time. So I think you'll hopefully see some terrific progress towards achievement of those goals. Well, I'll look forward to that. Um, and thanks again for having me down here. Kelly Barr is the Chief Sustainability Officer at SRP. Thanks, Kelly. Thank you. This is Green Biz senior writer Katie Fernbacher, and I recently spoke to Dr. Akira Yoshino, who invented a prototype of the lithium-ion battery back in 1985. His work, done for Japanese chemical giant Asahi Kasai, helped lay the groundwork for the modern lithium-ion battery using materials like carbon and lithium cobalt oxide. Earlier this month, he received a prestigious award from the Japan Prize for his battery breakthroughs, which have helped enable the digital revolution and change the world as we know it. Today, the lithium-ion battery powers many of the devices you use every day, like your laptop or your cell phone, and increasingly electric cars. Tesla uses these types of batteries to power its vehicles. These batteries are also starting to be used on the power grid, paired with solar and wind farms, and are expected to become a huge market over the next few years. But in 1985, the market was non-existent, and Dr. Yoshino and his team were envisioning his battery powering video cameras. 
Thank you, Kahatu. Back in 1985, or around 1985, when we were uh, promoting research and development on the battery technology, the market that we were targeting at was the battery for the video camera. And uh, the, the, the size of the market uh, for the video camera recorder was about 1 million batteries per month back then. But back then, I thought that was uh, really a sizable market. Well, uh, the battery uh, for the video camera recorder market does exist today, but in terms of the total demand, it represents only 0.2%. That means the market that we envisioned or targeted at back then uh, actually turned out to be 500 times larger. Last week, Dr. Yoshino attended a ceremonial dinner to receive the prize, and the event was attended by the emperor and empress of Japan. I asked Dr. Yoshino what inspired him to become a chemist and pursue battery technology research. He said it all started with his elementary school teacher, who was a chemist and told him to read The Chemical History of a Candle by Michael Faraday, a book from the 1900s. I looked it up, and it definitely wasn't the type of reading that I was doing in elementary school. I also asked him if he had any advice for young people looking to follow in his footsteps to discover scientific breakthroughs that can change the world. This is what he had to say. Uh, today, uh, the society uh, is uh, evolving around the Internet, and therefore uh, we are faced with the glut of information. Therefore, uh, I consider that uh, the young people uh, tend to misunderstand that there is nothing more to explore in the field of natural science because everything has been discovered and elucidated. But I would say that the reality is just reversed. That is, out of uh, the whole uh, discipline of natural science, what the human has so far elucidated is just a tiny portion of that. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to find more about the organization, stories, and events we mentioned in this episode. And while you're there, check out the link to our other podcast, Center Stage, the best of live interviews from GreenBiz events. You can reach us by email at 350 at greenbiz.com. We always love your cards and letters. GreenBiz350's director is Stephanie Joyce. Elsa Wenzel is our managing editor. And this week, we welcome Holly Seekin, our new editorial assistant, the latest addition to the GreenBiz family. Holly, it's great to have you on the team. As I said, I'll be off for a couple of weeks, but Heather Clancy and Shauna Rappaport will be holding down the co-hosting duties, so GreenBiz 350 will keep rolling along. Until next time, from all of us here at GreenBiz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening.